How many pitchers this season will throw over 200 innings? How do you evaluate players returning from injury like Chris Sale? We'll take a look at ATC undervalued starting pitchers with Paul Sporer next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruven Guy. How are you, Ruven? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Pretty good. You, you, do you own any shares of GameStop by any chance? No, but I own a lot of games from GameStop, and they only will give me like $2 for them now, so I don't understand what happened there. Oh, goodness, goodness. Our buddy uh, Uncle Steve Cohen in the news again, but hopefully he'll... Uh, Focus more attention on making the Mets better. You never know. Uh, we've got a great guest t- tonight. He is the editor of Rotographs. Welcome to the show, Paul Sporer. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. What's doing with you? How's uh, how's the offseason going, getting into the uh, midst of deep fantasy prep? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it's been nonstop this year. Never really took a break. And so, you know, as everyone else kind of comes uh, back into the fray as maybe their football team gets eliminated, things like that. I am here. I'm the welcoming committee. I'm welcoming everybody with open arms. I cannot wait. Usually for me, Super Bowl is the last snap of the Super Bowl is uh, the you know opening day of baseball because everyone comes back over that uh, that loves both sports. We finally get the whole group back and we really start to get into the prep season. There you go. And do you think that uh, we're going to start the MLB season on time, or will there be some uh, labor disputes and COVID issues? What What do you think? Yeah, I don't really think it starts in March. Um, April seems probably the best bet, maybe mid to late. Uh, it really just depends, right? Because they, they want to have a, a regular uh, a return to normal as far as the season goes. I don't know how uh, how viable that is, but we'll see. Once we kind of get started in uh, in February, we're going to kind of figure it out as we go along, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have uh, as full season as we can. So in our strategy section tonight, we're going to talk all about this episode about the starting pitcher player pool. This is our part one of our starting pitchers. And the first question, I think it's pretty important. Um, how many 200 innings pitchers is there going to be this year? Obviously, we didn't have anybody pitch more than uh, 80 or so innings within the 60-game season, but is anybody going to even be able to throw 200? What's your take on this, Paul? I mean, if we get 162, yes, I think there will be 200-inning throwers, even coming off the shortened season. Um, I mean, we see guys come back from injury uh, after missing a bunch of time, and, and they get back to their 190 to 200. So I, I think we'll see some. It won't be very many, though. Last time, 20, 2019, we had 15. I would not go that high. I'd probably go in the 5 to 7 range. And if I was sticking with 5, it's really kind of, you know, for the top 5 guys, DeGrom, Cole, uh, Bieber, Bauer. But then, like, uh, I like Sandy Alcantara to, to get there, too. I think they're gonna, I think they're going to let him get back up near where he was there in 2019. I know some teams are talking about different things, um, but I'm kind of looking more at the numbers that the guys have had. 2019, 197 in the third innings for Alcantara. He can handle a full workload. So I think they let the 25-year-old push his way up there again this year. Oh, interesting to say that. Uh, I'll throw in Lance Lynn in there. Um, That's a good one too, for sure. Yeah, he led the uh, the all of majors in uh, innings pitch this past year. 
Uh, Ruvain, what are your thoughts? And and more importantly, you know, how how does it come that pitchers obviously only pitch 70, 80 innings at the most here? Can they ramp up and go all the way and and hit 180, 200 innings? Uh, is is that something that players are prepared to do? Are teams going to stop them? I think it's possible that they can. I mean, if, if someone has never pitched over 175 innings, I can't see an organization pushing them because they don't want these pitchers to get hurt. And a lot of pitchers did get hurt um, even in the shortened season. And if you try to push them too much, I mean, I mean, Paul mentioned that only 15 pitchers pitched for over 200 innings in 2019. Only 40 pitchers pitched over 175 and only 78 in entire major leagues pitch over 150. So the fact that... The, that those numbers are so low and the philosophy of the teams are if you, they, the younger pitchers are usually the ones that are better and they usually have innings limits or so called supposedly innings limits but i think i think it's, it's it really depends on philosophy we had randy dobnak on and he said it's really based on philosophy he said he's going to try to push it as much as he can but it's but i mean if they have a shortened season if they play let's say 140 games instead of 162 yes there will be some players who are on pace to do it but it's it's not like it was. It, I think the age of the 200-inning pitcher is over. Interesting. Um, uh, Nick asks uh, mailbag questions, and he's asking by organization. Do you think that there are organizations who you trust more or less to allow their starting pitchers to get close to 200 innings? For example, he thinks that Milwaukee has already said they will only allow 100 more innings to whatever you pitched in 2020. Do you think it's an organizational thing, Paul? Yeah, I definitely do. And there are teams talking about six-man rotations. Of course, those break down pretty quickly, like once you have injuries and whatnot. So uh, I think they'll be more diligent about it this year. It's not like coming off a full season and and saying that you're going to do a six-man. It's very extenuating circumstances. So I do think we'll see some teams really try to stick with it. But by and large, it is going to be organizational. I think a team like the Nats, with the the pitchers they have, uh, would be inclined to maybe push Scherzer to go pretty far maybe Corbin can get back there I don't know about Strasburg because he is coming off the carpal tunnel and health has been a uh, career career long issue with him I could see them definitely doing it Cleveland seems to know how to maximize their starters now they they have jettisoned some of their veteran guys recently in fact uh, I think I think Plesak is the old man on on the uh, on the rotation now even older than Bieber uh, but Bieber himself, I think, is one of those guys who can get to 200. And I could see maybe like a Plesak or Savali being trusted to go that far because they believe in their pitching development and what they're doing there. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't put a lot of bets on these 200-inning thresholds, especially because I just don't know that we're going to get 162. And without that, then I really don't think we see any 200 Oh, right, guys. right. Assuming we, we, do, we do get a full season. Uh, I put this question to Twitter, and uh... Seventy-seven percent responded under four, four or under, with the number of pitchers throwing two hundred plus innings. That's quite not a lot. Uh, That's pretty incredible. Very small. Yeah, but it's also the it's also the philosophy now. We have openers and and in yep. pitchers in general pitch less innings to start. If the starter will go five, maybe six innings, so just that by itself will limit the amount of innings in a uh, pitcher will pitch. Yeah, that's true. A lot of th- it's not just the COVID. It's not just the ramp up. It's the philosophy of uh, the movement of baseball and, and where it's trending as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. So a uh, big question in terms of starting pitchers is the the players returning from injury. I'm talking about guys like Chris Sale, Noah Syndergaard, Luis Severino. Not really a COVID issue or short, or short season. They were just out with Tommy John surgery or other uh, other issues. How do you project innings for them? 
how do you determine from the start of the season it, what you're putting into your draft and what you're assuming, what sale, what Syndergaard Severino is doing? But, Paul, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I already have a pretty strong uh, do-not-take guys in the in their first year back from TJ rule that I kind of live by anyway just because of the uncertainty of the season. And uh, these guys will be no different. I just don't really see the draft day discount. You know, Severino probably is ahead, is ahead of the two by about a month. Uh, Sale and Thor had their TJ in late March, late February for Severino. So I, I could see him, you know, getting a few more innings there. But, I mean, what are you really going to get, right? With with these guys that come back from TJ, the command and control is the last thing to return. These are all hard throwers who could be wild, inconsistent, um, you know, only one of them's on a, a mediocre and a bad team, which is Sale in Boston. So they might they might play games a little bit more with limiting him. Whereas you know the Mets and Yankees are are relying on Thor and Severino respectively, which may help their innings counts, but could also hurt them if they're pushed too far. So it's a balancing act that I just don't want to deal with, and um, that's why I just don't mess with TJ guys in their first year back. They're usually not very valuable at all, so why even mess with it? But I'd put I'd keep them all in like the I don't know. 80 to 100 inning range at the max. Um, I mean, that's returning in what? Probably May, uh, I think, would be the earliest. I think these teams aren't going to go too crazy rushing them. So, yeah, I, I think I think they're an easy pass, though, with Sale, Thor, and Severino. Ruvain, uh, we're going to do the injury report for tonight in this segment. So what are your injury updates for the trio? Okay, well, first of all, for Severino, it's been stated that his rehab is going well. He did have Tommy John, like Paul mentioned, in February of last year. He was throwing off a flat ground and from 90 feet in October. His estimated return, according to all uh, everyone who's talking, is June or July. That's what they're saying right now. Chris okay. Sale, he's on pace to throw off a mound later this month, and he's started, he, is, he has been throwing. Um, but he hasn't reached that step yet. Um, and actually today it was reported that he did already have a step, a setback. He had neck stiffness. He's gone past that, but he still, and he just started resuming throwing, but that setback, this is going to happen all the time with Tommy John recoveries. Everyone recovers, recovers from it differently. Everyone pushes themselves differently. And Noah Syndergaard, he's on, they, again, this is according to the manager and everything like that. He is on schedule or maybe a little bit ahead of schedule from his rehab. Um, I, I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean he's going to come back in May? Does that mean he's coming back in June, yeah. July? It, it could mean all-star break, and they may want to wait and, and, and bring him back then. The biggest news at a, at a Syndergaard now is that he just started a book club. I mean, that's that's the biggest news of Syndergaard, and that's probably the biggest <laughs> news you're going to get out of him for the next yeah. couple of months. And yeah, as and for he, take... Go ahead. Pardon me. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just saying, if you're saying Sevy is June, July, again, Sale and Thor had it a, a month, month later. Correct. So you got to really factor in that you're not getting much. Correct. And also, there are, there are a couple other players who had Tommy John and were coming back for Tommy John, but then COVID happened. I'm talking about Jordan Hicks. I'm talking about Michael Kopech. These guys were coming off of Tommy John. They were supposed to be back last year, but they opted out. What are you going to get out of them? Do you invest in them? I mean, they yes, they are farther out from Tommy John surgery, but they're farther out also from actually facing hitters. And True. it's a very, very tough decision to do with them. That is tough. I would be inclined to uh, be interested in either though, because their price is so much cheaper, right? The three studs that we're talking about, people are starting to creep them up already. We haven't even gotten to February yet. And those guys are starting to get inklings that I don't think they deserve. With Hicks and Kopech, they're pretty far down the list. So I'm, I'm inclined to take a little bit of a gamble on them, even if I am only getting 80 to 100 innings. 
So uh, according to ATC projections, Chris Sale for 88 innings, Noah Syndergaard for 93, Luis Severino 83 innings. ATC is far lower than most of the other projections around. The projections on fan graphs have people in the hundreds, which to me is, is a little ridiculous. Um, and <laughs> look at Chris Sale's projection. I mean, Steamer's got 3.38 ERA with 112 innings. I'm sorry, but I don't buy that. At that, he is a $21 pitcher. Um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. The thing is that, you know, if you look at the projections, and even ATC, who uh, is much worse than, much far lower on these than Steamer or some of the other ones. Still pretty high. Like Still, still pretty, pretty high. Pretty great. Yeah, 374, 111. How much do these systems, to the obviously you know ATC, but to the rest of the systems, when they see a missed year, like how much can it be factored in of Tommy John? And is there anything done in the calculations with regards to how Tommy John returners are? Or is it really just pulling off of their previous data, which in Chris Sale's case, uh, and all three of the cases of those guys, is pretty darn elite, meaning the projection, even if it's muted a little bit, would still look pretty sharp. Right. I, I don't think that they're doing a good job of it. And I would say that I do not trust projections in the case of these year-after-Tommy-John surgery people. Yeah, Me I mean, uh, he, Sale is not going to bounce back and immediately throw 3-3 ERA. He's not. <laughs> I don't think so either. And uh, and a sub-115 whip, like I know he's a whip god because he, he's difficult to hit and he doesn't walk guys, but Sale, I just don't know that he's going to come back to that so quickly. And again, right. with Boston, they're garbage. I mean, relative to that division, they might win 80 games and be 500, but they're not really a competitor in that division. I don't know that they're pushing him to uh, get those extra 20 innings and, and make it, you know, 104 innings or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I think they're just a pass. It's just a headache you don't need. As an example, also, Nelson Lamette, we're going to talk about him later, but he had Tommy John surgery. He's gone up from his from his delivery, his fastball has gone up one mile per hour every year for the past three years, which means that even when these guys come back, they're not going to be throwing the same velocity. And what was Syndergaard known for? He was known for his velocity. He, what was Severino known for? He was known for his velocity. Velocity and control, the two last things that come back. It's great, great, great call out there. So, yeah, I think we're all in agreement that uh, the three of us aren't really drafting those guys. So if you if you love them, get in drafts with us, and you can have them. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, ATC is projecting a an $11 value in an NFBC format for Chris Sale. Uh, I just don't buy that. And it's one of the places where, in my own personal rankings, I will be very far off from, from that projection. But here's the thing. Um, it also matters what format you're in. True. Um, if you have an IL slot, I wouldn't mind taking – like if I, if I offered you, Paul, I said, you know what, I can give you Chris Sale for your last bench spot. You know, let's say you have 23 on the roster, 7 bench, but you have an IL. Would mm -hmm. you take Chris Sale as your 30th player and just yeah. dump him on the IL the first week? The answer is yes, right? Yes, and especially if you have a decent number of ILs. If you've got three to five – uh, because then you can have you can park one of these guys and take right. that take that free shot there because yeah but in NFBC we go seven bench and that's it and that's where my right. real pushback comes on them and I know not everyone plays NFBC so it is I'm glad you brought that up because it is definitely format dependent and if you've got enough IL spots they become a bit more appealing I totally agree with that because they could spike 
and and be useful. I mean, you mentioned Nelson Lamette. When he came back in 2019, he threw 73 innings with a 407 and 126. Now, the 407 is not really uh, jumping off the page at you, but how about a 34% strikeout rate? He gave folks down the stretch 105 strikeouts. If you got something like that from Sale, Severino, or Thor, you'd be pretty happy. I was talking mostly NFBC, so that's why you can't really jump in there like that. But with IL spots, you absolutely can make that calculation and find out where you want to pick. Right. If you're the last person to draft in the NFBC where there is no IL and it's the, the 30th pick, are you putting him on your bench? I don't even think I am. No, I'm not. Like I, I'm just right? I'm sorry, I'm not. Like there's too much to worry about to have a guy who's months away. And like when you're making decisions, once you get in the NFBC too, um, and you have to make or any league where you only have a bench, you have to start making those decisions it looks so enticing to cut the guy who's a few months off. So are you going to draft him and then cut him two weeks later? Then don't even draft him. You know, right. that's where that's where I'm at with it. Even more so with, with the COVID. I mean, you you yeah. don't know who's going to go COVID next. You need, you need right. the roster spots. You need every single one. Yeah. And, and that's a point about injury players in general. I'm more inclined to dump them quicker this season than ever because I don't have the luxury of holding on to so many players. I need those mm-hmm. roster spots if I don't have the IL. Very different this year. Um, if, in terms of the, the sale and, and those injury pitchers, I will say that if you're in a draft and hold in a draft champions type format, I can see that because you're t- talking about 50 man 50 man rosters um and if you get a value of sale in the last half i mean it's somebody who can really pump you up especially in like a best ball points league type format where you have 50 50 man roster okay then it's worth the risk of taking him in the 30th round you'll still get 20 other players to pick for injury habits um but then he can be worth that that uh yeah, you that pay value. a little bit of a premium and, and, to hold them in that scenario because they're right. 40, even if it was 40 innings, that's pretty low. But even if 45 to 60 innings, even if they go on the low end, could be very valuable to you and they could get upwards of 80. So I'm glad you brought that up because we were pretty negative on them based on the, the type of uh, uh, leagues that we generally play. But there are league formats that make them much more enticing. So that was a great call out, Ariel. Exactly, exactly. Let's talk about the super elite pitchers. Now, ATC is projecting Jacob DeGrum. Garrett Cole and Bieber, not Justin Bieber, um, far ahead of the rest of the pack. We're talking $40 or higher auction values. The next highest value is a drop all the way down $30 or lower. Right, So we're talking Wild. super elite value. It's not a, a a very gentle trickle. We're talking about very clearly three. Darvish and Bauer don't First get in of all, there a, at all? Uh, I don't have Bauer. No, ATC does not have Bauer. We'll talk okay, about okay. Bauer in so, a second. Yeah, sorry to interrupt but, you, man. I'm, I'm, I'm um, terrible right now. I'm, I'm interrupting yeah, you all yeah. left and well, right. I'm, I'm too eager. I'm too no, eager. No, no. Hey, listen. We're, we're here to debate, and we're here to uh, get good information out. So the first question, do you? I, maybe you don't. Do you agree with the fact that these three are extremely super elite? dollars split is, is tough, but I, I've always had my pushback on, Bieber, or on Bauer as well uh, with him being like a tinkerer and whatnot, and I worry that you know he, he kind of tinker himself out of quality. Remember the last time he had that Cy Young caliber season? That's exactly what he did. The next year he tinkered himself out of the elite. So I was just asking about the projections. I wouldn't necessarily have him there either. Darvish a little bit more surprising because he's been doing this excellent uh, new version of himself with the command and control since the second half of 19. And I wasn't sure if that was enough 
juice. But I guess with only two extra months, it's really like five months. It's not even a full season of that of that Darvish yet. Plus he's 34 or 35 even. Uh, so I get it. Yeah, I, I actually understand that split. Those three are really that far ahead. They're the first rounders. They should be a cut above. So yeah, I do agree with it. I think it's the right move. Okay, so the all right. So the point is that they're they're so super elite, and I would assume very low risk yes. compared to the rest of the group. They just when you have such a unique profile, that really begs first round talent. And let's go to Ruvain first on this. Um, they're first rounders for sure. How far would you put these? Would you push these up in fifteen team mixed format um, to the top? Are are you passing? Uh, are you putting them? picking them first overall are you picking them seventh overall uh, wh- where is th- that range for you the range for me is probably anywhere between six and 12 for the top three because you have Acuna, tatis and bets those three are like the, basically the consensus top three for this year so far according to the adp you have juan soto mike trout you want to do that that's fine but if you get one of those top guys next that's the way to go because you'll still get top value of, of a hitter in the second round because it's going to come back around to you. You're going to get these guys. And I, I you if you don't get those guys, like you mentioned, if there's such a big drop, it's value-wise, you want to get as much value in the first round. If there's a big drop there, you're not going to get that value. All right, Paul, same question, basically. How far are you, are you picking your first pitcher if they fall? Uh, well, I'm open to the overall number one spot, taking DeGrom or even Cole. I do favor DeGrom as the number one, but I could get behind Cole same there uh, as well if you really wanted to. If, if you just uh, – I mean, it's not quite a coin toss for me. I really do, I really do feel pretty firm about DeGrom, uh, but I think some folks – uh, see Cole's strikeout rate as potentially higher. I don't know. Not with the the 100 mile an hour fastball that Degrom was featuring last year. So he's my number one. I could take him number one overall. I think the hitting pool is so rich in the first 35 to 40 picks that that second and even third guy that I'm getting, I have no problems with um, getting those two and bypassing a Betts, a Trout. Uh, those are those are my top two guys. Uh, like generally speaking, I will take Betts number one overall, and or, or Trout. I will coin flip between those two. But there are di- instances where I would take Degrom, and it's not even a format switch. I could play five by five, fifteen team league, three different times get the number one pick all three times and take bets trout Degrom, mostly to diversify that's how close i have the three though uh but i do think Degrom is viable with that if he falls anywhere and if if i'm picking like i don't know i think ruvain said six i tend to agree if it's six and beyond and there's they're still there i'm taking the pitcher and i'm going um and if one of those three is there at my pick they become a hard decision in the, like the 9-10 range where I do love like a Trevor Story or a Trey Turner. But if one of those pitchers is there, I'm going to hard consider them because I really do think they're a cut above. Yeah. Um, you know, if you just do the straight projections out here, um, there's a case exactly as you said for DeGrum to be number, number one overall. Um, I would tend in a 15-team league to take uh, Acuna, Betts, Tatis, and I'll even throw in Juan Soto. I think Juan Soto is just so stable a player cool and so, yeah, so low yes. risk 
that it's hard to pass him up. I'm pretty sure he's going to earn very, very high value, yes. top two, three and, rounds. And you know, he throws in some sneak steals too, which you're not, you don't have to bank on to yes. make that pick viable. He could steal zero and still be fine as the number one overall pick. But his history suggests that he's not going to do that, that he's going to push like seven right. to ten steals, which is a nice little chip in. So you're not getting a total zero there. I am okay with Soto at one. Um, I didn't mention Acuna and Tatis. I don't, I don't bag on folks who take them. I just trust Betts and Trout a bit more than them, even though they're the younger guys. I, I'm going actually with the uh, with the veterans there with Betts and Trout. But I have no issues. I do think the number one pick spot, number one spot this year, is a bit wide open, and that you can't well, really be definitive it, on what you do. Doesn't have something also to do with if you have a plan for stolen bases. I mean, if your plan exactly. is to get one of those top guys to get stolen bases, it doesn't matter who the top pitcher is. You're going to take one of those top guys. But if you have and a plan fair. for later on and not get it, not go after steals in the first round, then by all means, you should be taking a pitcher. Yep, I think that's a great call out, and with Soto being a, a little bit of an exception there because he kind of straddles that line with a few of his steals. But yeah, that's a great call out. Yeah, and if Soto steals zero, then I don't think he's he's worthy of of a top pick well, here. He, he the wouldn't fact that be he's gonna like steal... it, it would it would come back and you'd be like, dang, that's a bummer. But I'm just saying, like, it wouldn't ruin your season. I don't think you'd come back and say, well, I lost because he had right. zero steals. His dollar valuation right, wouldn't be right. number one, but he would still have been a because you're not always trying to nail the top. Like when you pick number one, you're not trying to say I'm. I guarantee this guy's gonna be the number one guy you're, you're drafting a floor and it's an amazingly high floor exactly. with those guys and that's what i mean when i say that he could steal zero and you wouldn't really bat an eye got it got it got it yes that is true um it's about floor it's about getting the least risky person in your first couple of picks that's going to return the most the highest probability of retaining more value uh, but i'll also throw in uniqueness uh trey turner to me deserves first round because of the uniqueness of his I profile take him very early by the um, way, like fifth interesting interesting I, i'd go a little bit later on him but i think he's, he is a first rounder um mike trout i think i would rather take one of these pitchers i think that the uniqueness of trout's profile especially with the limited steals that i i project for him um, I would rather have DeGrom, Cole, and there's a case for Bieber ahead of Trout because of the uniqueness of those super elite pitchers compared to the rest many, of the how crowd. How many steals but you got him for? That's, just to go down that path just a little Trout? bit. Trout? Yeah. yeah, let me look that up here. Uh, Mike Trout, I have him for seven Versus steals. Soto getting how many? Because aren't they pretty similar then? I, I guess the batting – would there be a big batting average edge for Soto? So. Um, yeah, very big for, for batting average. So Juan Soto, I have uh, 14 okay. steals. Okay, that's, that's, that's a lot doubling. bigger than Trout. Okay. Yeah, and 305 batting versus... average. I believe that's the thir versus Trout's. Um, 287. That, I, I believe. Pulled it up. Sorry. Okay, okay. There that's, you go. that's fair. I was going to make the case that they're uh, darn near the same player, but they're not based on that projection. So that's fair. I still lean Trout, but. Uh, I hear you on that. But Trout is worrisome. He only had one stolen base all of last year, and that's, that's very true. worrisome. And 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 he's had a trend of, of stolen bases going down, and that's why he's not being picked number one. If he was still stealing even 15 bases, he'd be number one still. For sure. Yes. But I'm not sure yes, that yes, it's going to stay down because two things. He's still efficient. I, I don't put much stock into the one of two from 2020. I don't put much stock into much of anything that would ha happen in 2020, to be quite honest, because it's only two months. Uh, for good or bad, I'm not just going to use the good and discard the bad. I'm just I, I'm using 2020 as seasoning as opposed to a fundamental component of my my studies for uh, 2021. But if you look, 
He's 22, 24, and 11. That's an 114, 140, and 134 games. If Mike Trout is avoiding those those little knickknack injuries, he's still getting plenty of steals. I still think that he can be in that double-digit range pretty easily. So, I don't know. I think we could be surprised and have him drop 20, too. I wouldn't even be surprised if he dropped another 20. But I'm putting him closer to that uh, to that Soto number than, than the projections have him right now. So as far as um, uh, the format, for 15-team leagues is one thing. For a 10-team format, I would push more hitters up. Yeah. I think that you can wait on some pitchers because the value, the replacement level of a pitcher is going to be much higher as compared to the re- the replacement level uh, hitter drop from going from the 15 to 10 format. So in the 10-team format, I would take the pitchers much farther. I think that DeGrom is probably end of the first round, not right up a, close to I the concur. beginning. So that, that's my, uh, I, I think yeah. that makes total sense there. And you need that high-impact, devastating hitting. Um, and you can, you can even stream in 10 teams pretty effectively uh, to where you could really skimp on pitching. Um, you know, not, not the stuff that people used to do back in the day where they wouldn't take one until the 10th round. I think you have to go a little earlier than that. But, yeah, that's a great call-out based on the uh, league size. Exactly, exactly. It's, what, it's always the value of what you can replace with. And if there's good enough people on the waiver wire, it means they're not that valuable, so you can wait more on pitching, exactly as you said. Uh, last question in the strategy section. What about the difference between auction and draft in terms of how you're valuing uh, either the elite pitchers or just broadly, what are you doing for your pitching strategy in general? So in drafts, um, I really don't want to get left in the cold too much. Like I would really like one in those first three rounds. And depending on where I'm drafting, you know, I don't want to necessarily let it go. Say I am drafting a little later, I'm likely to jump on the pitching bandwagon on that loop around in the second round instead of waiting until the third to where maybe like like a Max Freed is my ace. I like Max Freed, but I don't know if I want him to be my ace uh, necessarily. I would, I would feel like I'd want to back somebody up with him right away. So I prefer to have somebody like... I like Brandon Woodruff quite a bit, and maybe people see Woodruff and Freed very similarly. I don't. I see Woodruff with a, a cut above. So I'd like him as my ace. If I get, like, Story Woodruff, that's great in the draft. Or if I do get one of the first-round studs, then I'm taking, like, three or four hitters in a row before I'm getting my second guy. And I could go, like, DeGrom, three hitters, and then Lynn in some instances, depending on where the draft plays out, and I'd have no problem with that. As far as auction goes, it's the best of both worlds, and I'm super open in most formats most sizes most league sizes to getting one of the aces and still a first round caliber hitter uh spending that big budget there to get to grom and uh you know lindor or jose ramirez or maybe even a super big dog like bets and Degrom, and then kind of work from there again i do think league size would play a role there to determine exactly how comfortable i am doing that but the freedom to do something like that makes it a lot easier to plan what you want to do uh, with your pitching in, a, in an auction. Okay. By the way, just uh, since you mentioned them, uh, we had a, a mailbag question from Morgan who says, I traded Max Fried for Brandon Woodruff in a keeper league. Sw- Please tell me I didn't <laughs> foolishly make this trade. I, I think you, you would assume that he's okay. I swear right? I, I did not see that before. I, it was on the list, but I did not look at that and reference those two because of that uh, email. That's hilarious. Yeah, I totally love that. And again, some people yeah. see them close. Um, it, it's less of a negative on Freedom, more of a positive on Woodruff that I do have them a cut apart. So I like that trade. 
ATC has Freed as the number 34 starting pitcher. So uh, I think ATC agrees. Uh, Ruven, what about you? What's the difference between going to auction strategy with your, the way you're shaping up yeah, well, your Well, let pitcher? me throw out the Woodruff Freed thing first. The Woodruff, his K rate has gone up for the last three years. That's why you go for Woodruff over Freed. That's, that's, mm-hmm. For me, that's it because you're looking for strikeouts, and that's why you draft a number one pitcher. If it's a normal draft, I would take a pitcher either in the first or second round. I'm not letting one of those two rounds go by. I can't go hitter, hitter, especially let's say you're you're near near a turn. If, if you're near a turn or by the wheel, you're not going to get a pitcher for so long. You have to wait so long. The value is just so low that it, it just doesn't make any sense to wait on it. You can't wait anymore. The pitching value, pitching, um, the value for it has, has been pushed up so high that if you wait for it, you're going to be shut out and you're just going to be hoping that one of these lottery ticket pitchers at the end actually hit as it comes for auction i can't see myself spending as much money on um jacob de gram or or garrett cole as i would on a ronald acuna or or as i would on a uh, mookie Betts. i just value those hitters so much more because pitchers tend to break down i'm very nervous about that and i I just don't want that risk going in there and you know what there's some leagues now that have quality starts um, in, in, with wins, and if you're doing that together, yes, you need one of these pitchers also. So I think when mm-hmm. we're talking about this, you also have to see the the scoring for each league. Because if you just have plain wins, if you have Jacob Degrom, you may not take Degrom. You may take Cole instead because you get more wins. But if you have like a win quality start type league, then you know a pitcher is so much more valuable, and Degrom is so much more valuable. So you would take the pitcher with your first pick in the first round. So uh, for me, you know, the plan in drafts in general, in general. If there is a player run, where do you want to be at? Do you want to be at the starting run, or do you want to be at the very end of the run? It's always at the start. You do not want to have a string of five, seven pitchers, and you get the seventh one. Oh, i got to get that guy. I, I totally agree with you, and I yeah? hear a lot of uh, advice suggests that it's fine to be at the end. I guess if you value them, it depends on your valuations, I guess. But I don't want to be at the front. I want to spur those runs, mainly because – the way I think about it, though, too, is like if you spur a run, then all those picks right after are kind of free picks for you, right? Because you weren't like you got your guy. And so the, the pick getting back to you, those are all free picks. Meanwhile, when you're at the end of the run, you're seeing all those picks go and they just feel like little gut punches one after another because all the value is going away and you're going to get stuck with somebody that you don't even there's nothing worse than the feeling of getting stuck with somebody that you don't feel that great about but you feel like you have to take because the draft has forced you that is painful and i don't like to be stuck in that situation uh so i totally agree and with what ruvain's saying if you pick say seventh and beyond in a 15 teamer that second pick has to be your pitcher if if it's not the first pick or else you're gonna have like i said Max Fried, Kenta Maeda, um, Denelson Lamette, Tyler Glass now leading your leading your staff, and I I like those guys, but they have to be number twos for me. Like I can't I can't make them my number one guy. I mean, keep in mind everybody else is spending on pitching, so if you don't spend on pitching, you're going to be mm-hmm. at a loss. And if everybody else, we talked about this with Tristan Cockroft, if everybody else is paying a market premium of a round or so, it's okay to pay that round. Just hopefully you won't pay one round; you play you'll pay only half a round more than than you should. Um, yeah, in the value difference, if you have seven picks in a row, the the pick slot value is not going down by all that much, but the actual value between the top and the bottom pitchers could be great. So for sure you want to start a run. I, I use this example usually when we're doing catchers. You know, is is JT Real Muto great to take uh, in the fourth round? 
The answer is it really depends on when the next catcher is taken. If the next catcher is taken in the fifth round, it's a humongous bargain. If the ne- if nobody wants to take a catcher and the next one's taken in the 18th round, well, you shouldn't have taken Real Muto all the way in the fourth. So some of the value, it depends on some of the other people, which makes drafts really tricky and, sure. and, and uh, a strategy onto its own. In terms of auctions, um, I, I'm again, I'm a value guy. I, I like to get the value for people. I think that there's a chance this year for the super elite to really have the value. I mean, we're talking about uh, $7, $8 difference possibly for DeGrum, where DeGrum is close to even be valuing that like a $50 mm-hmm. pitcher, and he might only go for $40 at an auction. I'd rather pay the $40 for DeGrum than overpay for a Walker Bueller and pay 35 bucks. Why? You know, I'd rather spend the extra $5 to get so much more value. So uh, I would go towards the top. But I, I'm finding a couple of uh, ATC undervalued players somewhere in the middle. So it may be okay to do some 1A, 2 type. Like you might find a good 1A, a good 2, and another good 3. And that might be the way to go to maximize your value. Which brings us to our ATC player discussion. As what we do on the show, Paul, is uh, we don't go through the whole player pool. We take a look at what ATC is showing in value. We take a look at what the market is currently saying, and we look for undervalued players, and we go through some of these undervalued players to determine if we agree. Now, we talked about Chris Sale, and even though it appears to be undervalued, we don't buy it, so we're going to pass that. Uh, it's it, ATC gives us the – it's not a be-all, end-all. It gives us the candidates exactly. to look for. So our first candidate here is Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw. Um, <laughs> this guy has been the bomb throughout his career. Um, what is the, do you know, in the last 10 years, since 2010, what is his highest whip? Can anybody guess? His highest whip, darn, I thought you were going to say ERA, which I think is 305, but, um. Yeah, 303 okay. is his highest ERA, whip, which is crazy. I'm and say whip? 114, that's a, that's a blind guess. 104. Oh my gosh, I was over by point one, which is massive in whip. Isn't that crazy? That's. That's nuts. He's, he's so insane, and that's why I love him. And I, I was pretty big on him last year advocating when people were starting to get off off the train a little bit. And I just like – I understand the innings, but everyone's coming back to Kershaw in the innings, right? We just talked about it at the outset with the 200-inning stuff. Yeah, he doesn't go 200 anymore. The last time he did it was 2015. Hardly anybody does, though. So when he's putting up an average of uh, from 16 to 19 of 166, he's not that far off the pace, especially for getting him a bit cheaper. And his 58 innings in this past year, 10 starts, that's that's in line with what everyone else was doing, and he was great again. So I am not anywhere near jumping off the Kershaw train. Yes, he's 33, but I do think the price uh, does build in a little bit of his age and, and concern discount, uh, enough for me to take the shot. The innings I get from him are going to be great, and... If he does go on the shelf, I do get to replace him, too. So I, I trust my savvy enough to get on the wire and hopefully put some quality innings in there if he does miss time. Yeah, the point is with Kershaw is that you're getting quality when he pitches. It's not the worry of bad performance. It's the worry of he'll miss some starts. And as you mentioned, you get extra value because you put him on the bench and you get another starter in there to accumulate stuff. A very big difference. Um who, do you know that DeGrom is the same age as Kershaw? Yes. We talk like, you know, the, Kershaw's the older guy. DeGrom is the same age. He's a late bloomer. You know, like, yeah, Kershaw's like 33. He's 33. He's thrown 2,300 innings already. 2,300 innings, which is crazy. Wow. And last year, his fastball was at 91, on average, was 91.6, which was his highest since 2017. 
How's that even possible? He's dealt with back issues, and he's on the shelf every once in a while, and the Dodgers want to keep him healthy for the playoffs, and we understand that. Mm-hmm. And he was even a little lucky last year. He's, he had the lowest BABIP of his career last year. So he had a little luck, but also he had the lowest, he lowered his walk rate again. How is someone with a whip that low lowering his walk rate? So it's seems like he's learning how to pitch even more and he's learning how to pitch with his bad back because he has a herniated disc in his back. Those don't go away. You have those the rest of your life yep. unless you have surgery. So he's learning one. how to pitch like this and there's no reason he's a lefty. He can pitch much later than other pitchers. Even after this, he can go into the bullpen. He can, he can pitch like Jesse Orozco. He can pitch until he's 47 if he wants to if he still has that great curveball. That'd be amazing, by the way. Yeah. A second career for Kershaw as a, as a one-inning reliever. I don't think that he'll do that, but I love the prospect of that of Kershaw possible. pitching at 45. It is possible, and he has learned to live with his back uh, because that is an issue. But I think people run way too far from him, so I'm I'm in. Yeah, you know his ground ball rate last year was the highest of his career, 53. Fantastic. Isn't that crazy. Um, he's a guy who, I mean, he used to be ni- sitting at 94. Now he sits barely at 90. He's not uh, a thrower. He's Absolutely. a pitcher. He knows how to get people out. Um, I would just keep an eye out during spring training of his velo- uh, fastball velocity, early starts in the season. That could be an indication, but if it doesn't dip any further, I think that Kershaw is a great pick for the value. Um, so ATC agrees, and we agree also, it looks like. Uh, how about Tyler Glass now? Paul, uh, are you in on him? What are your thoughts about the Tampa Bay So the Rams? rankings that I currently have on the site are from a long time ago, but I had him nine. That was a pretty aggressive snap reaction to the season that just was and that's just kind of where i where i had him um he is not there anymore i can say that with certainty as i've uh as i did the black book the fa- the fantasy black book with joe Sapia, and um i did the pictures on there and i so i i updated my rankings i know he's not there now i believe he's at 19 i moved him down a little bit uh but then i kind of have inched him back up another couple spots so he's at 17 right now where does ATC put him exactly? We have uh, in the top 10, actually. So I'm probably not doing that. My concern is still that he's a two-pitch guy and how many innings is he going to get. One thing I will say to, to that, though, they they trust him more. They, they clearly trusted him more than they trusted Snell, right? Glass now, despite being a two-pitch guy right. and having issues at times, they seem to trust him to go six-plus a lot more often than Snell, considering he didn't do it at all this year, and Glass now did it. He went over five in six of his 11 starts and six-plus in four of those 11. So they seem to trust him. I do wish he had that third pitch, though, and I still think that causes issues. It has the little home run rate kind of lurking there. So top 10, I mean, I guess I was with ATC at the very beginning of draft season. It makes me feel a little bit better about that snap. Uh, judgment there that I made, but I've come down on that, so I can't claim that anymore. I have moved him down. I, I'm going to pass on top 10. I think that's a little too aggressive for a guy with only two pitches and a little bit of a home run issue. Yeah, I think I'm going to pass on him also. He, listen, he's got a 12.5K uh, per nine over the last three years. That's great. His Ks Nasty. are up, but his ground balls are down, and his hard hit contact was up 10% last year. So when they're hitting it, they're hitting it hard. His home run to fly ball rate was the highest of his career. Um, but, again, you mentioned the two-pitch pitcher. As, there's a 15-mile-an-hour difference between his curveball and his fastball. That's still going to get you a lot of strikeouts. So if you're willing to live with those home runs, then he's a guy who can accumulate home runs for you. I mean, uh, strikeouts for you. He's a guy who, you know, I won't really have him for my ERA or whip, but I'm going to have him for those strikeouts because those strikeouts are so tantalizingly good. 
So I like him. I actually think he's a buy. Um, his whip, not, forget about just 2020, his whip over the last two years, 2019 to 2020, 1.01. It is very hard to find that kind of pitcher um, who will stabilize your ratios. And I'm not going to say that I love it having him as my ace. I think he's more of a 1A. But if coupled right, I think it could really work uh, to get a pitcher with the volume and then him to bank the ratios. Um, as Ruve mentioned, yeah, his you know he had a 4.08 ERA last year, but he had a 23% homer to fly ball ratio. His xFIP was 2.75, so he's going to help you in ERA. Um, he had a in 2019 1.78 ERA. I think this guy is super good for the ratios. And look at this, he pitched 57 innings last year. That would scale to if we use uh, you know the multiplier of 2.7, taking uh, 60 games to 162, 155 innings, which isn't a lot, but 246 strikeouts. We're talking 246 strikeouts without even pitching, you know, a rate of of 200, 155. That's um, that's, that's tantalizing. As long as he's he's um, not injured to start the season. I like this guy very much as my 1A to couple with another 1A to go boom, boom. Um, he's going late fourth round. I think he's a tremendous I think that's bargain. the thing that I was kind of uh, uh, misinterpreting or misanalyzing there because I was saying I wouldn't take him in the top 10. But you're saying that uh, obviously the ATC values him as a top 10. You're taking him where he goes as the 17th, 18th pitcher. That makes that makes a bit more sense there, as your particularly if he's your second. Um, so yeah, I, I, he goes basically where I rank him. So I guess I would be in on him. And then with ATC liking him more, yeah, I, I think I misspoke there when I said yeah. I, I'll be out. I was interpreting it as taking him as a top ten guy, which I would not do. He's going as the nineteenth yeah. pitcher. I think that's he's okay. a lot better than the nineteenth pitcher. pitcher. That's with fine. Those strikeouts, a hundred, hundred percent take it. Lance Lynn is going ahead. Kenta Maeda is going ahead of him. I'm sorry. I'm taking Glass now over Maeda. Kenta Maeda getting a Are lot you not? of love. Yeah, that's who I bumped him up. When I bumped him down to 19, I bumped him back up, up and it was to go over Maeda because I was like, eh, it's a little high on Maeda. And I love what he was able to do. But there was also the fact that, um, you know, he took advantage of the central in the in the mega season there. Uh, or in the uh, mega, mega central there. I think Maeda took big advantage of that. And what division did Glass now have the to East, pitch in? Which is much more so, difficult. So, yeah, yeah no, I'm, you know. I'm with that. I'm with that. Like I said, I misspoke there. Uh, I'm not trying to, like, change my answer. I'm saying I just interpreted it wrong, right. thinking that you were suggesting that you would take him top 10. You'd take him higher than he's going, but I, I can get behind that, too. i take him in the 13, 14, 15 range, even though I have him 16, 17, um, just cause th- to get your guy sometimes. Plus, pitching's going to get pushed up. Like It's already getting pushed up, y'all. I don't know how many drafts you guys are doing, if any, but it's already getting pushed up, and there's usually an, an extra push in March, so it's going to be nuts. Right. Here's another pitcher that's going ahead of him, Blake Snell. Um... Blake Snell is now—he did not pitch out of the fifth inning last year, famously in the World Series, which is a debate of its own. Um, But now he's been traded to San Diego, who has one heck of a great pitching staff. Um, You know, this is a guy who was Cy Young Award winner. He had one year, we had a 1.89 ERA, .97 whip. On the injured side uh, in 2019, last year, I mean, he didn't have that many innings, but he rebounded to a 3-2-4 ERA. I'm willing to give 2019 a pass. I don't think he's going to post uh, 2018 levels, but 
I think he's probably about bargain or slightly above. Pitching is push, pushed up. So if anybody is close to where they should be taken, I'm taking him. Uh, I, I like Snell here. I mean, to me, when it, you come to the fourth round, which is where you're getting glass now Snell, I kind of like one of the two, which is why I'm going to pencil in, you know, I mean, I'll grab one of these guys here. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, let's go to Ruvain first on Blake Snell. Well, I'm a little bit nervous about Blake Snell because – Remember, last March, he had an elbow injury, and he had an injection for his elbow injury. They said it wasn't his UCL. They said it was not near the tendon, so it's probably more like a tennis elbow type thing, but still, mm -hmm. he's already getting an injection for his elbow. He's actually older. He's older than Tyler Glass now, so I don't know why they didn't push him more last year. The Rays should have done that. They probably would have been better off that way. Um, he's already thrown 180 innings in his career. So there's a good chance that you're going to get a good amount of innings, especially if the Potters are going for it. They're going to push them even more. And plus, as of now, there's no DH in the National League, which is a plus. He's still going. That's This is old school. I guess you can consider this old school already. Moving from the American League to the National League, and you get to pitch against a pitcher, that's great. Um, also, the home run to fly ball rate, he's pitching in a different park. He's pitching in in, in Petco Field in San, in San Diego. That's better. So he, I think his, like you said, Ari, I think his numbers are going to be a little bit closer to 2018 as opposed to 2019. You know, and uh, the only problem I see with him is that his walks are creeping up. He had a 9% walk rate uh, last year. Uh, but yeah, that, that you mentioned the home run. He was very unlucky last year. He had almost a 30% homer to fly ball rate. Imagine 3 out of 10 balls that go in the air are going out. Uh, that's going to stabilize. So I think there's a lot of reasons to think that Snell, maybe he's a little bit healthier. Maybe he was unlucky. A lot. I see a lot more positive reasons to push him up than negatives to push him down. Paul, do uh, you agree? agree? Yeah, big, big fan of Blake Snell. Um, I just I, I really do love his game and think that he has the pitch diversity to really go deeper into games. And I, I agree that he should have been pushed a bit more. And it's certainly a frustration that he's vocalized. You know, uh, we're, we're we're passing friends on on Twitch. I don't want to overstate the uh, the friendship there, but we're, we're homies there on, on Twitch and talking to him about things. You know, he's not shy about expressing his frustration about not being able to be turned loose. So I'm hoping that San Diego understands what they have here and, and lets him try to figure it out a bit, right? Um, you know, they've talked about doing six-man. We'll see. We'll see how long the six-man's last once once the first rash of injuries start to hit. So I think Blake Snell actually does have a good chance at getting back toward that 180-inning uh, count from, from 2018 if we get a full season. I think he'll have a perfectly capable, you know, because he doesn't have to go multiple extra innings every time out. You know, 20 extra innings being with, uh, with San Diego could be, pivotal especially with his strikeout rates too they're reminiscent of glass nows so yeah i like snell quite a bit yeah i mean we mentioned that there might not be a lot of 200 inning pitchers but there's going to be some 200 strikeout yes. pitchers uh you're gonna you're gonna see that um how about carlos cookie carrasco welcome to new york very big part of the lindor trade i think it's very minimized but this guy had his lowest dra of his career 291 last year after battling leukemia first of all th just to point out how amazing is that that you fight that, and you come back, and you give it your all. I like this these kinds of players. I'm glad he's a New York Met. Um, he had a near 30% strikeout rate last year. The only thing to watch out for, like Snell, is the walk rate. But maybe that's something that uh, because of he was getting slow back from leukemia. I don't know. I, I'm going to give him a pass on that. I think he is a solid 1A pitcher. I'm. I think he is slightly undervalued here. He, again, he's going 
and he's going in the fifth mm-hmm. round. Um, I'm willing to take on him. I, I think there's a lot of good pitchers in the fourth, fifth round that I, I'd be willing to take on and, and really do a double 1A strategy. Uh, are you uh, in love with uh, Carlos Carrasco? 100% agree with, with the full assessment there, right down to the person and what he's been able to do to get over the leukemia um, and, and come back and pitch. I mean, he came back the year he was diagnosed in 19, pitched out of the bullpen, then a great season in 20. I also give a full pass on the walk rate because it's it's so antithetical to his career that I just don't see a reason to believe that that's his new level. Um, I mean, he doubled his walk rate. It's a tiny sample. Uh, first pitch strike rate didn't really go right, down right. any uh, any major way. Uh, let's see. You know, I don't see his zone rate went down a little. Like small ticks. Feasibly, if we had played a full season, he could have worked his chiseled his way all the way back down to his his career averages with the walk rate. So I have no concerns there that it's going to hold. Maybe it's up to six, seven, which would be higher than his uh, recent rates, but nothing that I have uh, any alarm for with Carlos Carrasco. Big fan. Think he's going to do very well in New York. Anything different, uh, Ruben? He's sneaky good. From 2010 to 2016, his ground ball rate was around 50%. Now it's down to 40% because his strikeout rate has gone up. So if you want more strikeouts, he can get you a sneaky amount of strikeouts. Now, a couple of things that I'm a little nervous about is that his his on, his uh, left on base percentage last year was around 85%, which is not Pretty really high. that sustainable for an entire <laughs> season. So I'm a little nervous about that. Um, but his hard hit rate did go down from 2019 to last year, from 40 to 33. And just like you guys, 100%. He's getting a pass for 2019. He's going to be only, quote-unquote, only 34, but he is healthy. He is a workhorse. He is an inning eater, and I think he's going to fit in perfectly well in New York. Rotisserie values for Carrasco since 2015. 18, 13, 27, 18, minus two. That was the leukemia year. Uh, And $10 last year. And that mostly was so low only because he only won three games. Uh, That's an aberration. He was pitching well enough to to do better than that. They didn't support him very well. Right. And a one win in a 60-game season means a heck of a lot in terms of roto price. So we're talking about a guy who, you read the numbers, he's high teens. Uh, his price is the auction equivalent of $20. You're getting what you pay for with Carlos Carrasco, uh, and he's moving to a better ballpark. To me, it's another great pick. How about Zach Greinke? The question is not whether he's good. The question is, is this the final year of him being good? I think that uh, no matter what, his ERA, his ERA is going to go up, right? It, it started to creep up. He was at four last year. I think he's going to be four or a little bit up on that, but he's – uh, he's a whip stabilizer. I mean, we're talking somewhere in the he, career. He's been, you know, low ones. Uh, last year, a little bit up to 1.13, but 1.13 is phenomenal in this day's roto game to keep it down. Um, strikeouts, they're going to creep down. Um, ATC only has 167 strikeouts for Granky. Despite that, he's still a $17 value which for an auction equivalent going for $14, which is a late eighth round pick. Uh, I think for the price, uh, Granky is a very decent buy. Paul, do you yeah, agree? I'll put him in the 200 inning can, uh, category as well. At, even at age 37, yep. I mean, he just he can pump out the innings. He doesn't put a lot of pressure on his arm with his velo. In fact, his velo was down three points last year to 87, which we talk about every spring training, and he still comes out and dominates. And yeah, I, I think building in concerns that he's a little bit of a low fours with like a a 118 whip is smart. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's even what it's going to be. I think there's a, a real, a legitimate chance that you still get a three seven five with a one 
with a 115 instead. Um, now, again, you don't have to pay for that because that's not where Grinky's going. There's a little bit of the ageism that we see in fantasy sports pushing him down. But uh, this is still a pretty rock solid uh, profile here. He doesn't walk anybody. And if he can chisel a little bit of those hit gains off, uh, he was at right at 9.0 per nine with a 321 BABIP. If that, if that comes back a little bit, let's say to the 294 career mark that he has in BABIP, I think the hits will come down. You'll get that whip back. And like I said, you'll be under four with the ERA and under 115 with the whip. Even if you're at 402 and 118, which is what ATC projects for 182 innings, I think you're going to be fine. I agree. Um, he's only three years since 2008 that he has thrown less than 200 innings. That is unfathomable in this wow. day and age. It's just unbelievable. Um, he had the second highest Babbitt, like you mentioned, Paul, second highest Babbitt of his career since 2005, which means that he was extremely unlucky last year, according to his standards. Um, his fastball, if, even if it sits at 87, his curve sits at 70. And he has an EFIS pitch that he throws in there that I still keep watching over and over, watching uh, Jason Worth just staring at it. That's just, that's the so great. Cool. If you have never seen it, go into YouTube, look, <laughs> look, watch Zach Cranky throw that EFIS pitch to Jason Worth and just watch his jaw drop. I love that. Um, he's almost got 3,000 innings on his arm. That's my concern. He is 37. When is he going to hit that wall? That's my only concern. But again, Two weeks into spring training, we're going to say his velocity is down. But you know what? As long as there's that break of 87 fastball to a 70 curve, I don't care what your velocity is. That difference is the – that's what matters most. And he still uses his changeup, which is a mile slower because of the movement on it. He's doing what Felix wanted to be able to do, which was to have like virtually no split between your fastball and changeup and still have an effective changeup. He couldn't quite master it. Granky's mastered it. And then that curveball really puts guys on their heels. The last thing about Granky to mention, um, this year and uh, hopefully in the next week or so, it'll be up on Fangraphs, ATC is showing some volatility metrics. So we know that ATC is, yeah, it's, it's salivating, right? ATC is uh, an average of other projections. But, of course, when you have other projections, it would be nice to know whether those projections agree or disagree, right? To tell you that something if a guy's going to hit 20 homers, does that mean that everybody's saying 20 homers? Or does that mean that there's a spread and the average is 20 homers? Well, that's what we're going to put up there. Uh, it's called inter interprojectional standard deviation. And interprojectional skew to tell you whether uh, the the distribution of them skews up or down. Is it one projection that's really pushing the average up? Is it one that's pushing it down? So there's very good information that you're going to get about there uh, that's going to be up on Fangraphs very soon. Um, Zach Granke has a standard deviation of only $2.70 for his projections, meaning the standard deviation between high and low and whatnot is only $2 and change of value. Most players, uh, I've seen somewhere between 3 dollars 4 being the average of standard deviation. That means that projections are tight on him. There's not a lot of disagreement. Everyone pretty much thinks this is who he is. He's very close to this ATC average. So you can be more sure of the of the fact that ATC is right and that, oh, hey, projections all agree, guys. It's not like, well, somebody thinks this, somebody thinks that. No, everything's pretty tight. So uh, when you do some of these studies with ATC, take a look at what the standard deviation is, see if it's high or low, and you'll get a, just a little bit more flavor of what goes into it. Now, here's a, here's an interesting question. If you have an option of getting a top five or top seven pitcher, would you do that and pair with a pitcher from the fifth round or sixth round like a Jose Barrios? Or would you rather combine a Zach Greinke and Tyler Glass now? 
I'm more inclined for the latter combo. Um, if I if I can feel comfortable about locking them in, I think the uncertainty it, it's it's a weird balance there, and I, I hate to fence it too much because in the first round you have more control. If that pitcher's available, you take him. Glass now Grinky is such a great combo that I love that you point those two out. I just I feel nervous about if I can even get those two though, and I don't want to be left scrambling like a guy we're going to talk about next. I'm very much out on even though he seems like he might be a decent fill in for Glass now and Denelson Lamette. I wouldn't want to do that. So in practice, I think I would end up doing the stud pitcher with like a Barrios, um, but in 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 theory, I love something like Glass now Granky if I can time it properly. So, Denelson Lamette, our next guy. Um, to me, the big question is health. Ruvain, report. All right. So, Denelson Lamette, the Padres GM, AJ Preller, said that Lamette was not expected to have offseason surgery. He was dealing with a biceps and elbow issue. He had a PRP injection, which gave them some optimism because he actually responded well. He's only thrown in his entire career 150 innings twice once in the minors in 2016 and in the minors majors in 2017 he missed 2018 he missed most of 2018 but you know his velocity like i mentioned earlier in the show his velocity has slowly ticked up the last couple of years so he's very tantalizing to also to to want to grab because of those because his raising velocity and because of his strikeout rate um and one thing that i'm nervous about though is that he is Having a very lucky last year, his home run to fly ball rate was a low of 7.9. That's not sustainable. He's he's going to give up more runs. He, he does have some warts on him, and he's not going to be able to pitch 160 or 170 um, innings. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I don't think that's even possible for him. He was a $30 pitcher, and that's even with winning the same three wins as Carrasco last year. Why are you out on him, Paul? Oh, I just don't really buy that performance holding in any real capacity. I mean, his slider was literally the best pitch in baseball, and that's awesome. It is a very good pitch, but it's really his only reliable pitch. This was the first time we've seen the fastball be a positive offering. He did add a tick of velo to it, which is impressive, and it's going to help him keep some of those gains, but the slider is going to come back a bit. Like Just having the best pitch in baseball uh, is hard to repeat. And so I, I, I don't think he's going to be able to do that. I just, I just don't see it. He's still only a two-pitch guy, and, and you can even say one and a half because of the uncertainty of the fastball. We've only seen this two-month run of it being good. And you throw in the health concerns with it. Truth be told, even if he'd been healthy, I'd still be uh, pessimistic on Denelson Lomet. In fairness, I was pessimistic on him coming into 20. I was definitely wrong, 100%. I've since upped him from there, but I have not moved him commensurate with how this 2020 has put him in the market, which is as a top 20 pitcher, uh, or top 25 pitcher. There's no chance I'm, t I'm taking him that high. I just, I cannot do it. Um, I just don't have that much confidence that he is a superstar. I think he's a solid star level talent he's not a superstar though so i i gotta take him somewhere in the 30s or even 40s among starters which means i'm not getting him of course for denosal lament i'm a little bit higher than 30s and 40s but i will say that i'm probably out on a draft formats i'm probably considering in auction formats um in a draft it really is depends on uh what is the what if you don't pick them who are you going to get i think i have better options in the fourth round I have better options, as we've seen in the fifth round. I really don't want to pay the same type of price. I think he's too risky for passing up on some of the other pitchers, which I like better. But in an auction format, um, I can see the opportunity where he's, because of the risk, a certain auction room 
passes on him and only has him at $17. At $17, I think he's shown enough with his strikeout rate, which has been fantastic over the last two years individually. Um, his walks have been super low, um, so and his ratios have actually been pretty good. Uh, I mean, a .86 ERA, a .86 WHIP last year, which is also fantastic. So I think there's enough in there to get a $3 discounted auction that I'd buy, but I think that in a draft format, I am out. How about um, his teammate, Chris Paddock? Um, Paddock is suddenly, what, the fifth best starter on San Diego? Can I that be? I think so. I'm a huge Musgrove fan, so yeah, I think he is the, the, the lowest of that bunch. All right, so uh, are we taking Paddock at his price when he's going in the eighth round? Probably not. Uh, Grinky, Julio Urias, Charlie Morton, McCullers, Lopez, Pablo Lopez, Kevin Gosman, the aforementioned Joe Musgrove, Sandy Alcantara, I could keep going. I think a few more, but Frankie Montas are all going after him, and I prefer all of those guys to him. Um, you know, he's a good pitcher. I'm not I'm not fully out on the Chris Paddock experience, but I have him 38th amongst my starters, which means I'm not getting him uh, at, at that price that he has. And again, you're looking at a guy who's a two-pitch pitcher. He, I don't think he's as bad as he was in in 20 this isn't like oh he's he's the 20 guy and and move on but he also wasn't as good as we saw in 2019 at least from a overall skill standpoint because he has a home run rate uh, that is an issue a 1.5 mark in 2019 it was up to 2.1 in 2020 even if you just give him a pass for 20 and look at that 2019 one that's concerning that's too many home runs there he's a fastball changeup guy until paddock develops something that is a quality third pitch form whether it's that curveball that he's been dabbling with or the show me cut cutter that he had this year i have concerns about him and his consistency is the issue i think he'll be volatile and it's uh, volatility i'm not really that interested in at the cost so i'm passing on chris paddock you know, Saris raves about his command plus. He's still in on him. How about you, I Ruben? I am in on him 100%. The only real change I saw from the numbers from 2019-2020 was that he got more ground balls last year. He's never thrown more than 140 innings, so you're not going to get that many strikeouts from him. But I was listening to um, Lucas Giolito talk about pitching staffs, and he said that he learns more from other pitchers on the staff as opposed to the pitching coach sometimes. And those new pitchers that are coming to the team, they can teach him certain pitchers, or they, they can teach him a third pitch. They can teach him how to get out of certain situations because his problem is he he tends to uh, get a high pitch count late in, in, in games, and that's why he can't go so deep into games. So if he learns some stuff from you, Darvish, from Blake Snell, from Joe Musgrove, he can elevate his game to even higher heights than they were in 2019. So um, where he's going in drafts is the eighth round, and I'll give you some other names right now in the eighth round. Uh, Stanton, Tommy Pham, Mike Moustakis, Byron Buxton, um, Dylan Moore, Matt Chapman, Dominic Smith, Cabrian Hayes, uh, Zach Ranke. Um, you know, I, I don't find anybody I find just off the top of my head really attractive in that round other than Granky Paddock. So if I'm thinking, I'm planning my draft, I would put these two as a hot spot. Uh, there's also Charlie Morton in that round. Lance McCullers is in, in a little bit earlier in the round. But there's enough pitching in that round that I kind of like it as a pitching round. I might, in my plan, say round eight, um, Paddock slash Granky slash other pitcher. Uh, so in that case, I like him for this. Um, I, I'm buying him. Uh, his walk rate has been going down, down, and even had a, not a great year last year. His walk rate went even down. Uh, K per nine is nine, which is still very good. 
ATC is actually pessimistic than a lot of other projection systems. 3.94 ERA, um, although up and down. Uh, the interesting thing, we mentioned the interprojectional standard deviation. It's even lower than Granke's at $2.60. Um, I find him very similar to what you're going to get out of Zach Granke. Probably fewer innings, a little bit more risk, so I prefer Granky to him. But I still think he's a good buy, especially in an auction format. I think that you're going to get a nice discount on Paddock, especially since in real life he's probably the fifth starter. But he might be a number two starter on your team. So I'm I'm in on Paddock. Uh, let's go to the Los Angeles Dodger duo. We, we talked about Kershaw already, but how about Tony Gonsolin and Dustin May? Two exciting pitchers. Uh, Gonsolin's already 27 years old. Dustin May... Only 23 years old. Wow. Um, what are your thoughts, Paul, on the Dodger duo? Are they going to step it up? Are they worth the spot? They're, these are a little bit further down. We've been talking about guys eighth round and above. Uh, Gonsolin is going in the 14th round, May a little bit higher in the 11th round. Thoughts yeah, on those I'm out two? on May uh, and his price. I just and There's some development to be done there. Like he, He's a gift master. Everyone loves seeing the gifts, but it doesn't translate into the fantasy results that you would expect. Uh, I think a lot of people end up surprised if they don't have him on a team to find out that he has an 8% swinging strike rate and a 21% uh, strikeout rate in his 90 and two-thirds. It's because, you know, sinkers, two-seamers don't really generate swings and misses. Uh, it's more of a ground ball situation, 51% ground balls. And that certainly is going to help him with his ratios for Dustin May. But He's not the full fantasy package right now, and as such, I'm not paying the premium, and he's going to continue to move up, too. Uh, Gonsolin I'm much more interested in uh, between the two. He's cheaper, and frankly, he's better. Uh, he's older, so he's more developed, and that, that makes sense that he's better. But I think from a fantasy standpoint, I mean, you talk about 13% swinging strike rate, yielding a 25% strikeout rate in his 86 and two-thirds innings as a major leaguer. Um I think he's been difficult to hit at 6.0 hits per nine, yielding a 260 ERA and a .92 whip. It's, even combining his two samples is still very small at 86 and two-thirds, but I think everything we've seen from Gonsolin suggests that he's legit. Now, it's a matter of the Dodgers. Are they going to mess around and, and you know kind of have one of them as the sixth man and bouncing them around? You know, Price is coming off of missing an entire season. They've always been pretty cautious with Bueller. Uh, Kershaw has his back. Urias, they've never really taken the full reins off him. So I think even if it is a six-man situation, um, and and you know you draft the guy who is in the sixth spot, whether whether it's May or Gonsolin, I think if you're just patient, you'll be rewarded. That's one of those though that you have to know your own uh, intestinal fortitude with regards to holding on to players. That if it doesn't work out instantly. Can you be patient enough to hold? Uh, say they don't need a, a sixth starter if they do six starters for a little while, and you know Gonsolin's getting these three-inning relief stints for a couple weeks. Can you hang through that to wait for when he gets starts? Because he will get starts. No team just uses five all year, and the Dodgers will be no different. So I, I prefer Gonsolin by quite a bit between he and May. So you need like a buyer beware sticker for these guys in terms of proceed with caution. You might have to wait a little bit of a while. Um, I'll give you a couple of notes on my end. Uh, Dustin May, um, you, you hinted at it, Paul. 99-mile-an-hour fastball velocity, yet he's producing just a 7.5K per 9, 20% strikeout rate. Something doesn't add up there. You would think That's that with— the sinkers. Most people—yeah, uh, he's getting those ground balls, but you'd think that he would get, be a little bit more effective on the strikeouts. Bothers me a little bit. Um, but he's a solid pitcher. 
Um, 11th round might be a little bit too much for me. I have at par value with ATC. I depends upon what I need at the time. Certainly, he's not going to pump up your strikeouts. Maybe if I if I, there's a reason to take him, if I have a lot of volume earlier and I need a little bit better ratios later, maybe take a chance on him. Tony Gonsolin, um, we talked about the interprojectional standard deviation. He is the highest pitcher in terms of where projections differ. Right, nobody with uh, above replacement value has has a more difference in price with the underlying projections. That's very interesting. People don't know what to do with Tony Gonsolin. The average, though, according to ATC, is a nice $4 bargain. Um, he is a 14th-round pitcher, and ATC thinks he's a couple rounds. Uh, his skill set is a couple rounds earlier. Question, though, is innings. At the projection, ATC is projecting for the $10. That's 117 innings. Should he pitch more, he's going to be even more valuable. Uh, I like him. I like him for the upside, the innings upside, because remember, you're getting replacement-level uh, stats with him. If, if he's going to skip a start because they're going a six-man rotation, plug in somebody else. He'll get you stats along the way, and you'll get, still get the full value of Gonsolin over the year. So I do also prefer Gonsolin over to May. I don't love, love these guys, um, but I'm going to probably own a little bit more shares of Gonsolin than May. Ruben? I don't love these guys either, but it's also a matter of the makeup of your team. If you have the strikeout guys ready up top, you don't have to worry about these guys being plugged in because, listen, if they're going to continue to have a seven-inning doubleheader rule, these guys are going to come into play. All these guys, are gonna, they're going to find their innings. They're able to find their innings. You know, last year, they were able to find the innings. Whenever they get to the playoffs, there's always an injury um, coming up. The, um, David Price is getting older. We mentioned Clayton Kershaw. He is getting older. He's expected we have him, I think, 160, 107 innings of quality innings. But still, they're, they're missing innings. They have to fill them in. And these guys are the guys to have. But they're not really strikeout guys, so don't get them for the strikeouts. Now, as for the price, Tony Gonsolin is much more palatable than where Dustin May is going. Dustin May, he had 140 innings. That was his tops in 2017. His K rate has gone is has gone down. His ground ball rate has gone up. And he was lucky last year. He had one of his lowest babbits of his career at 234. So I'm a little nervous about May, especially like you mentioned. He throws 99. You expect more strikeouts. Yes, he's got that heavy sinker and he gets grounders, but is that defense behind him going to be as good as it was last year? Are they going to, we don't know what's happening at third base. Justin Turner still hasn't signed yet. You don't know where he's going yet. Tony Gonsolin, he's older. He knows how to pitch. He hasn't thrown more than 120 innings and he did that back in 2018. So the 117, 112, 117 range is a good projection, but I think there's no reason why he can't go past that and I think if the Dodgers have to call in one of the two to start, I think they're starting May, and I think Gonson will piggyback off of him. Got a couple questions in the mailbag. Nick Bruce asks, "Do you give any value boost to pitchers who sign with a new team with a good reputation? For example, the Giants seem to really help Gaussman and Smiley maximize their potential last year. Should Desclafani get a boost? Are there any other examples for this year, Paul?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I give teams certain respect, so I could I could certainly see doing that. Um, Descalfani is an interesting one. You know, he's so cheap that uh, it's not a it's not a bad it's not a bad lottery ticket. I think anytime you know Cleveland's really become a hotbed, and I think somebody like uh, they didn't just get him, but Cal Quantrill has has been on the radar for folks as like somebody to watch out. Maybe he could be their next big emergence you know anytime the rays do something i think it garners some attention there they haven't really gone out and gotten new pitchers they've actually moved on from them although luis patino what kind of opportunity could he get not that he was leaving a bad squad in san diego but yeah there's certain teams that i think 
do uh, do get alterations made sometimes on the negative end. Somebody goes to LA and they're not like that true frontliner, like a, like a Kershaw who should be trusted, you know, as long as he's healthy, then you have to peel back a little bit. And that's what we we're just talking about with May and, and Gonsolin. So yeah, there's definitely team context things that you try to do a little a buck here, my, plus a buck here, minus a buck there type of deal. Yeah, Ruvain, what, what do you think? Uh, a good, good reputation help uh, pitchers in, in terms of uh, who you're going to select for the no, year? No, I, I don't think that, ch- that changing uh, teams is giving that team player mu- that much of a boost because they still have the same, same skill level. Yes, they may be on a better fielding team. They may be in a better home environment. Sometimes the change in scenery helps, but it doesn't change the pitches they throw. It doesn't change their mentality coming into the game. So I, I, I'm not so high when pitchers change from one team to another. I don't think they're going to get a huge boost. I don't think there's going to be huge negative i think it's really neutral but i i don't agree with their with pitchers getting a boost well we did just mention the the giolito thing about how you know he picked up pitches from other guys so it, it would be in that same vein of like learning it, it really the impossible thing is to know how motivated somebody is to learn right like giolito did transform himself and like uh, Don Cooper doesn't really deserve any credit. He didn't do any of the work. It was Giolito's drive that did it. And I, so I guess it, the real important thing would be understanding how much of the pitcher uh, is out there doing the work on his own. Is Descofani trying to learn from other guys? Is he you know, re, re-upping with Kevin Gosman from when they were in Cincinnati together and saying, hey, what have you been learning since? And, and, and getting the tips there. Or is he somebody who stays to himself? That's why it's difficult to really do it. But I do think if you have to be cognizant of the team context situations because there are definitely little factors that can give you tiny edges here and there. No, that's great advice. I will say, though, that psychologically you remember when it works, when the change of, oh, wow, this guy had a change of scenery. Wow, Dylan Bundy, what a yeah. change of scenery, and it worked. You don't remember when it doesn't work. And for every time that it does work, it doesn't work some other time, um, and you don't know about it. So, uh, and, and by the way, projection, since I'm a projection guy here, um, you're not going to see any of this factored in. You know, the, the change in team, you'll see park factors, and that's about it. In terms of other guys, J.A. Happ, maybe you'll see something there. Jose Quintana, I can see maybe a change of scenery there. Uh, Alex Wood, that seems like a good situation for him. Uh, Richard Sands asks, uh, interesting question. He's saying... 5 by 5 Roto is all about doing well in those 10 categories, and most podcasts are filled with other metrics that could be confusing. This player's launch angle is X, hard hit contact is Y, and Woba is this, so I like him for 21. Uh, and uh, his, or somebody else will say his BABIP is this, and his OBP is this, blah, 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 blah. But in the end of the day, Richard says, all we care about is homers, runs, RBI, stolen bases, average. So what do we do with all this conflicting data? What do you make of this question, Paul? I mean, it's hard to sort it all out. And that's why, you know, whenever I'm asked, you know, what are your favorite stats? I always wind up on like strikeouts and walks for pitchers and hitters, to be honest. It's still the most fundamentally important thing to look at uh, or two things to look at. And so that's what I really go to. Um, I understand that it, it can be overwhelming and, and it can conflict. And so that, that's a bit of an issue. That's why I think that... Um, you should be looking to simplify it a bit more. But with a lot of these stats, we are still getting to the core of the skills that we have, right? Because RBIs, they have to be 
context-based, right, uh, based on the team that you're on. Um, there are elements of power that we're trying to get to to determine how many home runs they can hit. There's stuff like sprint speed and home to first times that can help us with, with stolen bases. There's, you know, barrels and exit velo and launch angle that can help with average and home runs. So a lot of it's going toward the categories that we're looking at. We're just still trying to find the best players. It is a lot to wade through. I totally agree. And I think sometimes people get way too in the weeds and you're right. They turn one corner thinking that they found something only to find that they contradicted themselves because this other stat that they all also believe in says the opposite about said player and you got to be careful with that sort of stuff and that's why all of its ingredients right I mentioned about seasoning with 2020 all of its ingredients here and don't take any one thing as like this is surefire you know barrel rate that's the one stat I'm going to use and I'm just going to go with that it's like okay well you know you can't just draft off a barrel rate list I think you have to try to find what 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 works for you in terms of not overloading yourself, but also not keeping yourself in the dark on the stats, right? It's, it's a delicate balance on what you can handle. I think you've said that very well. I'll just add to it that, you know, certain stats are more correlated with Bingo. certain other stats than others. You know, we know that your contact rate, how often you strike out, is going to have a direct relationship to your batting average. So while it might not be 100% true, right, there's a correlation effect. We know that the more this, the more that. So, you know, you, it, it takes a lot of understanding to know what affects what more. Some things have half correlation. Some things don't have a, have a, have a correlation, but it's very weak. Um, so it takes, you know, that's why we're here as analysts, to sift through what it is, to determine what is the right correlations, and to know what is real and what is fact and what is fiction. Uh, not easy, but uh, that's what we're here for, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, anything to add, Ruben? Yeah, there's one stat that's not counted to any of this, and that's confidence level. If a player is confident in throwing a pitch in a certain situation, they're going to keep throwing it because they know they're going to get it out. They're going to get the out they need, or they're going to get the swing and miss that they need. Um, a lot of these pitchers, they have the skills, and you have numbers, and they're oh, such a cloud. These numbers are good. These numbers are not good. If you see a pitcher on the mound, a lot of times you do the eye test. If you see there's the body language on the mound, you can see whether or not they're confident, whether or not you can trust them. And I think a lot of that, you don't. sometimes you can ignore everything everything just look at the pitcher see what he's doing see if he's confident you look at Steven Matz last year he was just traded that's why I'm bringing him up he looked defeated every single time he took the mound he was kicking the dirt he just didn't look right but if you see a change if you see all of a sudden he's got confidence pitching in Toronto that's a guy you may want to scoop up something like that is sometimes it's the intangibles and not all these cloudy numbers that are just you know making noise in your head Thank you, Mr. Derek You're welcome. for that no, one, no the problem. intangibles. <laughs> uh, last question. Jared asks us, well, maybe this is a basic question, he says, but I'd love to hear what you guys think. Who is the biggest bust in the range of the SP1s, so the top 12 to 15 starters? He says maybe Scherzer seems like the obvious bust, but what are your takes? So we talk a lot here on the show about who are the undervalued players, but you know, who's a bust in uh, who's being taken as an FP1? What do you think, Paul? I don't think it's Scherzer. Um, I actually could see Scherzer being elite yet again. Um, I have a hard time betting against him. I know there's some injuries piling up. I know there's some some factors there. I'm just talking about the guy. And then you talk about those intangibles that Ruvain was just going on about. Few guys have more of them than Scherzer, just kind of the the it factor. And I know that's, you know, we're stats guys, but that's and it's intangible. So we get a little irksome around that because how much can you put into that? But Come on, I think Scherzer's proven that he has not only the talent basis, but also that extra little it factor uh, to kind of get him through. So I don't think he's a bust. As far as like the top, 
uh, 12, you know, again, so I can't take Lamette then. I probably go, I'm still a little cautious on Jack Flaherty as a bona fide lockdown ace. And he, I was coming into 20 and he didn't really do anything in 20 to make me feel much more comfortable. Granted, there was not really going to be enough time. I'm not sure that I would have fully bought in, even if he had put up another, well, maybe if he'd put up another 275 ERA, even for the 40, 40 innings, but he only pitched 40 innings. It was a little bumpy. I already had a little bit of an issue with him. He has a persistent home run rate over 1.1. You know, love the strikeouts, love that he can be difficult to square up. I just don't fully trust Jack Flaherty as a an unquestioned ace. So that'd be my bust in that top twelve there. I like that answer. Uh, I was gonna go either with Flaherty or uh, Aaron Nola. I, I, I don't think too. there's anybody yep. in this. Yeah, there's there's nobody in this first round of pitcher, the first uh, top tier pitchers that are total bust, like they're gonna float exactly. the face of the earth. But um, I think that Nola has probably a lower chance of ret- retaining uh, its his final ranking than some of the others. Um, we've seen both sides of Aaron Nola. We've seen the almost Cy Young Award winner. We've seen something a little bit low. He does pitch in a in a tough division these days. He does pitch at a ballpark that home runs fly out of. So I can see him having a higher probability than some of the others. And Flaherty, I agree, it's just the risk factor from not doing it for any period of time, really. I mean, he just had, what, a half a year of of really good play? Um, So uh, I'll go with that. Uh, How about you, Ruvain? Do you have another pitcher? I do, and I hope he's not listening because I still want him to sign with the Mets even after I say all this. (laughs) But I think it's going to be Trevor Bauer. Now, Trevor— Luba doesn't listen to this podcast, I really hope he doesn't because he's got other things to do, like do his own podcast. Um, but I don't think his I don't think he's going to return the value that people are drafting Matt. In 2018, he had an ERA of 2.21. 2020, 1.73. Every other year since 2012, including 2019, his ERA was 4.18. He had a career he has a career Babbitt of 2.94. Last year it was it was 2.15. That's a, an, an aberration. He had a 90.9 uh, a strand rate last year, which was ridiculous. His K rate jumped from 10 to 12 over nine. In one year, I think he was a product of a short season in the NL Central, pitching also in the AL Central. I can't, I, I don't understand how he's going ahead of, G, of the likes of Giolito, Bueller, Castillo, Kershaw. I think all those guys should be taken before. Now, that being said, I still want him as a Met fan. I want him on the Mets because he is a top pitcher. I just don't think he's on that level where he should be your number one ace. So uh, I just want to debate you on that one. Uh, now, I can't disagree with the fact that he was. Very lucky last year. Certainly that ERA, I wouldn't be surprised if it jumps to close to four. Here's the thing, though. We talked at the very top of the show about limited innings, that you're don't not going to see a lot of 200-inning pitchers. I think that Trevor Bauer is one of the few locks to get really close to that. I mean, he's even talking about, I want to pitch every fourth, fourth day. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Th- now they're not. No teams are not exactly. going to do that. But exactly, it's it's, it's but, not going to be. It's not going to be two, up to him. It's it's 100 not going to be up to him. But. But the 200-inning part, that could be. He is going to push innings as much as he can, uh, and he's going to be solid. So I would not I would think that he has a better chance of retaining some of his value, even if you think that Giolito has more upside and whatnot. The fact that he throws innings, and if you do the math, those extra 10 innings 
add up to a lot more value than you think. It could be dollars and dollars of auction value. So because of the innings pitch risk is lower on Bauer, I'm inclined to take him over guys like Giolito, over guys like Nola. I, I don't think he should be behind there. I disagree but with you. talking about dollars, he was pitching for a contract last year. He was pitching for his own money. How much are you going to say that, you know what, I'm, this is not worth it? I, I just I just don't think that it's going to be worth it. He's he's. I don't think he's worth it. That's my opinion. He was also very likely using something for the grip, right? Like he basically told on himself when he exposed the uh, when he when he exposed the Astros. He said, "You can't you can't get this kind of um, uh, spin rate improvement without using something." And then he goes out and has that spin rate improvement. Now I don't begrudge him that. I don't have anger or animus toward him for that. Um, I just wonder, did he do it for the contract year, get a Cy Young, get the bag, and now he's going to go back to not doing it and still be good but not premium elite? Or does he keep using because the league doesn't care anyway? I mean, look at the the giant uh, brown spot on, on uh, Kimbrel's hat that he goes to every pitch, and other guys have stuff like that too. Like, they don't care. So maybe he keeps doing that, but that, that's just another little X factor there that maybe – uh, you would consider with Bauer. Um, he is very good, though, and it, it is hard to deny that he's awesome when he's on and very smart about pitching, too. Yeah, interesting. Well, we we do a lot of leagues together, so we're probably going to have to debate and come up with a plan that suits us both on uh, the use of Bauer. Anyways, uh, this is a wonderful show. Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining. Uh, Paul is the host of the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, uh, the best podcast that goes into deep dives of every single player. Uh, if you want to learn the player pool and you don't have, know how to do these analytics yourself, don't read articles, whatever, um, take a listen to to, to Paul's podcast. Um he does it all for you. you. I, there's a wealth of information. Justin Mason there giving his take. Both takes are fantastic. Um, I really highly recommend it. Uh, Paul, why don't you tell everybody uh, else uh, where we can follow you, read you, all things Absolutely. Paul's Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, by the way. I do uh, Sleeper in the Bus. I really enjoy it, and I think it pairs well with this podcast. If you're already obviously already listening to this one, hit the Sleeper in the Bus up. We got you covered all offseason here leading into the year. You can hit me on Twitter at Sporer. That's S-P-O-R-E-R. That's also where I am on Twitch, twitch.tv slash I play MLB The Show most nights, hang out, talking baseball. You don't even have to play PlayStation. You don't even have to play video games to want to come through and talk baseball. We're talking fantasy all the time. We watch the uh, top 10 right now shows by each position on MLB Network. We're doing other stuff in there. So even if you're not a video gamer and you just love baseball, Come through on an evening at twitch.tv slash spore, and I bet you'll have a decent time. But I did beat you on the shorter Twitter handle name. You'll have six letters. I got five. It's pretty good. It's pretty impressive that you're at five. I I, I do respect that. You know, I should have gotten on earlier, and I could have maybe just been at Paul. How sick would that have been? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That would be pretty cool. I I did look for ATC. That was taken. Uh, So, unfortunately, we just did NY, which suits me. Ruvain, how about you? Tell us about where we can uh, see your stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates during the season, during the offseason. I also have a weekly injury article on Rotoboiler. And about the whole Twitch thing and when watching uh, players play on MLB The Show, that's where I heard Lucas Giolito say this. And Lucas Giolito actually mentioned that he plays MLB The Show prior to each game in order to get a scouting report for each each, to go over the scouting report in his head. So that's just another reason to watch Paul while he plays. I just I still just play RBI baseball on the old Nintendo and Sega <laughs> well. Genesis systems. You know, I <laughs> I don't know. Call me an old old school guy, but uh, that that's where I am at. 
<laughs> All right. Anyways, this was a fantastic show. Once again, thank you so much, Paul Spore, for coming on the show. From all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.